Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we question all of our cultural creeds, like that the attack on Ukraine is chiefly about military might. When these atrocities authored by Putin are being committed in the name of culture, whatever culture is, and that immensely interesting question is exactly what This is Critical exists to determine. I'm going to quote a few supremely provocative lines to this point from Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, just to get you thinking and because I can't get them out of my own mind. I know that these lines make me catch my breath somehow. Zelensky's words seem foundational to any discussion of global culture, but I don't know exactly what to make of them, and that's why I say they're provocative. I'd actually like your opinion of them. Neighbors, Zelensky said, always enrich each other culturally. But that does not make them a single whole. It does not dissolve us into you. We're different, but that's not a reason to be enemies. Of course, he's speaking about Ukrainian and Russian culture and how they don't have to be considered either the same or radically opposed. Hard lines don't belong when it comes to culture, which lives in irony, imagination, play, humor, eccentricity. Now, remember that Zelensky's a stand-up comic and also a dancer. You should see his tango and his Elvis impersonation on the Ukrainian version of Dancing with the Stars. Now, the second line he delivers is an epigram. He's addressing the Russian people, whom he says have been misled by Putin. You are told that we hate Russian culture, Zelensky says, but how can a culture be hated? Any culture. Now think of that in your own life. If you hate a culture as a culture, let's say you hate red state pickup trucks or red caps or certain kinds of music or other clothing or dialects and accents, I mean, you hate those things. I mean, you'd almost go to war to eradicate them. What does this even mean? Incidentally, Zelensky has survived three assassination attempts in the last few days. If the world loses him, it will be an almost unbearable loss, not just because he should have been protected, and he's a great leader and defender of Ukraine, humanism, and the hope of liberal democracy, but because Zelensky has so much to teach the rest of us. Today's guest to discuss Ukraine and Russia is Bill Browder. He's a businessman turned political activist and author of Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Bill has an extraordinary story of confronting Putin in the 1990s for corruption, a confrontation that ended in the torture and murder of his lawyer. 
To avenge his lawyer's murder, Bill helped create the Magnitsky Act in his lawyer's name to punish rich oligarchs responsible for human rights abuses by freezing their assets and their capacity to travel. From this experience with Putin and the Magnitsky sanctions, Browder has derived ideas of how Putin might be stopped or at least stalled and how to hit him where it hurts. Bill Browder, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you. I'm going to spare you the usual, I wish we were meeting under uh, more pleasant circumstances, just because I think things will get worse. So we want to save our real misery for later times. Maybe we'll look back and think this was a great time we were talking. Well, I, I have to say that if you're coming to me for optimism, unfortunately, you've come to the wrong place. My, my, <laughs> what, I know, what I know about Vladimir Putin and what I've seen him do in my own microcosm of a conflict um, leads me to some terribly grave predictions about how this is going to all end up. I want to back up for our listeners who know your story less well than I do and begin by saying that you and President uh, Zelensky have something in common, and that's that Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, knows your name and also has had you in his sights. How did that come to be? So I was the largest foreign investor in Russia in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, as a part of my investment strategy, I started to expose corruption in the companies that I invested in. And as you can imagine, that didn't make me very popular. It, well, first of all, it was very profitable because if you expose corruption, people feel less comfortable being corrupt and, and the profits go up. But um, it also made a lot of those people uh, very angry. And those angry people were close associates and in some cases business partners of Vladimir Putin. And so in 2005, I was expelled from the country. I was declared a threat to national security. And then in 2007, my offices were raided by the police. My, off my Moscow offices were raided by the police. My documents were seized. I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate. And he discovered that the documents were used to perpetrate a very complex fraud in which uh, government officials stole $230 million of taxes that I had paid in the previous year. Sergei was a patriot, and um, he couldn't believe that the officials of his own country could do something like this. And so he testified against those officials, and he was subsequently arrested by the same people. He was put in pretrial detention. He was tortured for 358 days, and he was killed at the age of 37 on November 16, 2009. And I've made it my life's work since his murder to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And justice was impossible in Russia. And so I came up with this idea of freezing their assets and banning their visas in the West. And I took it to Washington. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act is something that Vladimir Putin completely and absolutely went out of his mind when it was passed. In retaliation, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And then he started going after me and Sergei. He put us both on trial. Sergei, as a dead man, it was the first trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. Me as his co-defendant in absentia. And we were both found guilty. They couldn't do anything more. After they killed Sergei, they sentenced me to nine years in prison in Russia. Since then, they've been chasing me all over the world. There have been eight Interpol arrest warrants uh, I was actually arrested in Madrid in 2018. I live in London, and they've tried uh, approaching the British government on multiple occasions to have me extradited. 
And Vladimir Putin even went so far as bringing me up with Donald Trump in 2018 at the Helsinki summit, asking Trump to hand me over. And so, interestingly, I've become, since 2012, a central focus of Putin's life, where he, he was so angry about this piece of legislation that I passed that he's been chasing me all over the world. And, and interestingly, Putin, he, he's a very cryptic man about most things. He, he almost never mentions the names of his enemies. And he, he had so much lost his cool with me that he just kept on repeating my name in all sorts of public settings and press conferences, et cetera. It was like I had really gotten under his skin. Yeah, I mean, I guess FDR said, judge me by the enemies I've made. And if you're the opposite of Putin, that's a morally secure place to be. But it must be terrifying because it's become quite clear to the rest of us what he's capable of and how ruthless and single-minded Putin can be. You know, one of these reasons, your exposure of corruption in these Russian firms in the 90s, and I guess we should add that it was a great time of transition for Russia. There was a certain amount of optimism. This is the Gorbachev-Yeltsin era, right? One of the reasons this is interesting is it was the oligarchs' corruption you were exposing. Do I have that right? Yeah, so so the oligarchs were, were my enemy when I, when I was f- trying to be an investor there because they were stealing from the companies I was investing in. And there's an interesting kind of transition that I saw with Putin. So when Putin first came to power in, in 1999 as a prime minister and then president in 2000, he wasn't all powerful like he is today. He was really kind of weakened, if you will, because the oligarchs, who were the richest guys in the country, had stolen all the power from the government and the presidency and the parliament and, and, and were basically running their own sort of policy, tax policy, foreign policy, every kind of policy. And as a result, life was pretty terrible for the Russians. And so Putin came in and he said, I want to bring the power of the presidency back to the president's office. And at the same time, as I was fighting with the oligarchs for stealing from me, he was fighting with the oligarchs from stealing power from him. And so in the very early days when he came to power, there was this, um, I've never met him, but we had this sort of alignment of interests. And so oftentimes when I would expose the oligarchs for doing their malfeasance, Putin would would jump on the bandwagon and and run with the stuff that I'd exposed and use whatever power he had to stamp out what was going on. And for a while, it looked like, you know, he was a good guy. I, I actually praised him in the early years. But then he ended up, Uh, arresting the richest oligarch in Russia in 2003, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky. He is the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And he was worth at the time like 15 or $20 billion. And he arrested him off of his private jet in Siberia. And he brought him back to Moscow. And he put him on trial. And he allowed the television cameras to come in and film the richest man in Russia on trial, sitting in a cage. Yeah, a cage. I mean, can you explain that? What does that even look like? Well, they, they basically, in Russia, there's a 99.7% conviction rate in criminal cases. And so they don't give you a presumption of innocence. They just put you in the cage because mm-hmm. that's where you're going to be when, when you're all done. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's literally a cage with bars. Mm-hmm. So they put this oligarch, Hordakovsky, in this cage, and they allow the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so imagine you're, you're another oligarch and you see one of your brethren, somebody richer, better, more powerful than you, sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? 
Yeah, that that humiliation awaits you. <laughs> you don't want to be sitting in that cage yourself. Right. And he said, it's uh, real simple, uh, 50%. And not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, 50% for Vladimir Putin. Mm. And at that moment, he became the richest man uh, in the country mm-hmm. and uh, in the world, I should say. Yeah, by your calculus, and I find this really interesting, that you you put him as richer than, say, Jeff Bezos or any of the American oligarchs. It's very hard to calculate what he's worth, but you know he's said to have the first billion-dollar home <laughs> and maybe worth as much as, I think you've said $500 billion, something like that. No, I, I said $200 billion. I said this in 2017. Two, okay. But um, mm-hmm. he's still an extremely rich man. But it's, it's, it's going to be impossible to derive it exactly because none of the money is is held in his own name. It's held with these oligarchs. The oligarchs mm. continue to be his trustee. Now, there's a very interesting point here, which I, I'd like to make, which is that the oligarchs aren't doing this out of, like, friendship or trust or goodwill. They're doing this, they're, they've basically been extorted by Vladimir Putin. And so all this money that he holds will never go to him if he wasn't the president of Russia, mm. if he didn't mm-hmm. have the power to arrest the people, or to ruin them, or to kill them, at at a whim, they, the the money that they they're supposedly holding for him wouldn't be his, hmm. and therefore, part of the problem here and the unsustainable nature of this arrangement is that the only way he can be rich is to continue to be in power, and so he can't sail off into the sunset and set up the Putin presidential library, and. Um, take a painting or, or, or something like that. He's, he's got to um, stay in power. And it's very hard. I, I, as time goes on, it gets harder and harder to stay in power. You can't just do it forever because people start grumbling. Even the best leaders end up becoming unpopular. And he's not a good leader to start out with. All this money that he's stolen probably belongs to the Russian people, not, not to him. And, and it should have been spent on healthcare and roads and hospitals and teachers and so on and so forth. I mean, it seems as though, and this is how we get up to Ukraine, it seems as though Putin has built up not just the the nuclear arsenal maintained and built up, but also this kind of surplus of dollars. Isn't that right? That there not only does Putin himself monopolize a giant fortune, you know, what ought to be close to the GDP of the country. And as you say, belong to people. It is literally tax money. I mean, it's a, it's this tax, this 50% tax on the oligarchs, but he also has uh, this kind of trade surplus that has been important for him to maintain the tight ship, the financial tight ship of Russia, which is in addition to the nuclear arsenal, something we often overlook as a strength of Russia's. Well, that's, that's entirely right. So um, Ru- Russia defaulted on all of its debt in 1998, which means that they started with zero debt balance. So most countries have, you know, have like 100% debt to GDP. Russia's got 20% debt to GDP. And also because he doesn't care about his people, he allows the currency to devalue. And, and the more it devalues, um, uh, it's easier than to, to keep your, your foreign exchange reserves high. And mm. so as a result of that, and as a result of um, just high oil prices and, and, um, and other things, he, he's accumulated about $640 billion of reserves at the central bank, which he thought gave him a big cushion when he was going to do whatever nastiness he was going to do. So 
you know, at the time you were in Russia, an immensely interesting time before you were expelled, the nation, as we said, was in transition. And the hope was that it would go from crony capitalism, a sort of like bootleggers and mobsters to a more orderly, more regimented capitalism. And then the big dream that there would be some kind of liberal democracy and controlled market capitalism that would make Russia look very much like the West. That's not what happened because, as you have chronicled, the cronies were never fully reformed. And what happened instead is Putin became one of them. And now we have something like a state capitalist system where he gets all the money. Yeah. So instead of getting rid of the oligarchs, um, he became the biggest oligarch. Mm -hmm. And then he wanted to reward some of his uh, most loyal deputies, and they became oligarchs. And so there was no oligarch system of, uh, that, that has been, uh, you know, kind of de demolished. It just became an even more entrenched oligarch system. And yeah. there's an expression that um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as his wealth became you know, so ginormous and his power became so great, it, it all sort of flowed into this thing where he thought he could do anything he wanted. And mm -hmm. that's where we ended up today. I really wonder if ever in history, I mean, Alexander the Great, who knows, if there's ever been a time where someone has had so much military power, one individual, so much military power and so much financial power. And I think that's what makes him terrifying. And obviously the kind of snake brain to act without conscience um, toward other countries. So just in describing the current peril in Europe and the West, it's worth pointing out that his power is not just some kind of intrinsic cruelty, or even the arsenal, but also this this extraordinary oligopoly that he sits on. And that's why sanctions are extremely important here. So I'm going to leave aside the nuclear threats, the new thermonuclear saber rattling that Putin has also been doing for a second to think about his financial war and his kind of effort to punch back on globalization by making a move toward kind of real world power, a very 20th century move to actually invade with military force another country. Now, the hope of the West, particularly Germany and America, but other countries, has been to constrain him, to strangle him, they say, with these sanctions. How do you think those sanctions, at least the way President Biden spells them out, are working and going to work? Well, the, the sanctions um, have all sorts of different functions. There's all sorts of different types of sanctions. I would say that if we had been more proactive about doing sanctions while all this buildup was going on, it might have stopped him from doing what he did. For one simple reason, he was making a bet. He was making a bet that we were not actually serious about doing about sanctioning him if he crossed over and did what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. We have zero credibility in creating consequences for Vladimir Putin because he's done so many terrible things before and we haven't created consequences before. And so mm -hmm. he was looking at our past behavior and predicting that that would be our future behavior. And so if we had if we had imposed any of any part of this whole sanction program on him pre invasion, mm -hmm. he, he might not have invaded or his military objectives might have been much narrower, but we didn't. 
So here we are, and we're saying, okay, what do we do now? So the, the most important thing I should point out is that Putin doesn't have a reverse gear. Hmm. He's unable to back up, because if he were to back up, he would do something which he considers to be his own death sentence, which is showing weakness. If he shows weakness, he ends up losing power. I mean, when I say losing power, not just becoming less powerful, but getting kicked out. It sounds as though, I mean, from what I understand, it's the image of the individual in the cage or more specifically uh, Muammar Gaddafi when he was sort of in the dirt or Saddam Hussein also in a hole that terrifies Putin. Yes, he, he, he's probably watched the video of Gaddafi, you know, 50 times. And this is, it's like his worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. Ceausescu getting hung from a lamppost. All this stuff is his worst nightmare, and this is, and he's not wrong. I mean, that th this is the kind of thing that would happen to a guy who's, who's perpetrated such atrocities on his own people. So for him, it's a total survival exercise for so doing this war. This war is not about NATO or about Ukraine. This war is about staying in power. He's watched his neighbors, Lukashenko and Nazarbayev, who are both dictators on, other, on opposite sides of Russia, all either losing power in the case of Nazarbayev um, or almost losing power, as in the case of Lukashenko. And Putin understood that, that his power was going to be challenged soon as well. And so this war is all about not getting overthrown. Hmm. It could be any a different combination of a war, but since we didn't give him any credible indication that, that he would be punished by us if he did this, he decided to go big. And now he's gone big. And we can't expect that anything we do is going to cause him to say, okay, let's negotiate and retreat. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. So what is going to happen? Um, what's going to happen is he's going to carry on executing his war. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two things that have happened in this war that he didn't expect. One, he didn't expect that the Ukrainians would put up such an unbelievably brave and valiant fight and cause him such terrible collateral damage. So he's been humiliated on the um, military front. And then all of a sudden... We did what he didn't expect us to do, which is lock arms with the Europeans and, the, and Britain and Canada and, the, and Japan and, and various other countries and just issue the most devastating financial sanctions that I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and so coming back to his war chest at the central bank, we've frozen all the money that's in hard currency at the central bank. All euros are frozen, all dollars are frozen, all sterling is frozen, all Swiss francs, all yen. So what's not frozen is the money he has in Chinese currency, but uh, everything else is frozen. Yeah, I mean, sanctions, so as I understand it, there are three kinds of sanctions going on. Maybe the first is this freezing of finance. The Russian government, as you say, is is unable to trade or operate in, in all these hard currencies um, that are safe in the West that can, you know, can be banked, bankable money. The second are these sanctions on elites, which are brutal. And that is really your area of expertise. The third, you know, the one that could have been the most effective, which is making it impossible, you know, we could have started to disrupt the oil and gas 
trade out of Russia. But it was extremely important to Germany and to America that there not be a dramatic spike in gas prices. And so the most extreme version of the criticism of these sanctions is that they are carefully calibrated not to interrupt payment for energy deliveries. And in that way, it seems as though we're letting this happen for fear of people, quote, feeling it at the pump, which is our usual relationship to uh, the Middle East and Eastern Europe. This is such a fast-moving story. Yeah. And, and our, our reaction to what he does is so fast-moving. So if, mm-hmm. if you go back like a week and a half ago to the first set of sanctions, the United States, I think it was Tuesday last week, announced we were going to sanction... Um, everybody doing business in Donetsk. <laughs> and, and then on Thursday, we said, we're going to sanction Sparabank and VTB Bank and Gazprom and, and Surgut Neftegas and so on and so forth. And a few oligarchs, not a lot. And then on Friday, we said, we're going to sanction Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, and we're going to go after SWIFT. And so mm-hmm. this has been elevating and elevating as the atrocities hit our TV screens. The United States has always been a leader compared to the EU and other places, but all of a sudden, everybody is now trying to outdo each other in terms of these tough sanctions after watching these atrocities. And all of a sudden now we have like businesses jumping into the game. BP has, is going to divest their Russian holdings. Maersk, the shipping, said no more containers going in and into and out of Russia. No more DHL, no more FedEx. So all of a sudden, everybody is getting in on the action. And I think that if you were to predict that this is where sanctions end, that would be a bad prediction. I think that that Putin is going to do so many more terrible things, and we're going to ratchet up the sanctions to a point where maybe the Germans will have to, you know, turn their thermostat down uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, Or Americans will have to feel it at the pump. So we know why Vladimir Putin once considered Bill Browder enemy number one. But Putin's time of making enemies is far from over. After the break, we'll hear why Bill Browder thinks the invasion of Ukraine is only the beginning of Putin's plan. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, Magnitsky Act proponent Bill Browder is explaining what we get wrong about sanctions and why we'll need to get them right to stop Putin. Let me tell you the scariest part of this whole story. Okay. And the scariest part of this whole story is that um, this, he's not stopping with Ukraine. His intention is to carry on, and the next stop is the Baltics or Poland or someplace where he then has an opportunity to challenge us and to challenge NATO. And why does he want to do that? Because he believes that NATO is a concept 
and not a real treaty. And, and, he, and he's not necessarily wrong to, to say that. He, he's looking at us and he's saying, okay, America let Afghanistan fall to the Taliban because we didn't want to keep 3,000 soldiers there because it was politically impossible or incorrect or whatever the, the mm-hmm. logic was. And if America is not ready to, or is ready to, to let Afghanistan go um, for the sake of 3,000 soldiers, they're surely not going to want to go to war with Russia for the sake of Estonia, a country with a million people that no American could locate on a map. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's just throw nuclear into the, into the mix. And then he may you know, create a nuclear crisis that he's going to launch nuclear warheads if we go to war with him. And so what, what are the American, what's the American public going to do? They're going to say, we don't want to go to war with Russia over Estonia. And then we end up in a situation where, in his perfect world, we then have some big treaty in Yalta uh, mm-hmm. where we say, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to redraw the map. You have everything in the former Warsaw Pact. We have everything uh, on this side. We put up a wall and um, we uh, can glare at each other into perpetuity across that wall. And then he becomes the emperor of this new larger landmass with all sorts of new um, slaves and, and underlings that he can control. That's, his, that's how he's going to play it. And so, we, of course, we want to avoid that at all costs. And so how do we avoid that? The way we avoid it is we have these unbelievable people helping us, the Ukrainians. The mm-hmm. Ukrainians are keeping him at bay. They're the buffer. Yeah. They're fighting him like hell. They're losing people on a daily basis in, in the hundreds, if not thousands. And we should do everything we could possibly do, everything, to support the Ukrainians because they're the ones keeping us from having a war directly with Russia or, um, God forbid, allowing him to take over half of Europe and put us back to where we were at the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also really want to talk about these the, the current sanctions on oligarchs and the response of the oligarchs whose names you know to, to the sanctions that directly hit them. So there's, there's two ways to stop Putin, uh, other than helping the Ukrainians. One is to mm-hmm. take, take away the money he has to fund his war, the official money inside the central bank, and we've successfully done that. And the second way to do it is to take away the money that, he, that Putin has outside the country, which is the wealth of the oligarchs. And so we've started to do that, but we've only sanctioned like, I don't know, 10 so far. Hmm. And what have those sanctions been? I mean, I, I know sometimes this comes down to seemingly ridiculous things that go to their egos, including limiting their access to the south of France, say, or yachts or other kind of extravagances that represent a kind of ritual humiliation of these overmen. But what else is having its effect on the few oligarchs who've been targeted? Well, the moment you put someone on a sanctions list, particularly if it's on a sanctions list that everybody has, their lives become financial lives become impossible. No bank will do business with them. Their money is effectively inaccessible. Whatever deals they have are scuppered. Mm -hmm. Hell, they can't even use Microsoft Word because um, you have to have a license from Microsoft for that. Mm -hmm. It's it's really terrible to be put on a sanctions list. There's nothing worse for anybody. The problem that we have right now is that the the U.S. has got different oligarchs than the EU does, and the EU has got different ones than the U.K. does. Nobody seems to have a, a coordinated list. And the number of oligarchs that have been sanctioned is still de minimis compared to the number of oligarchs that exist. And if we really want to hit them hard, we have to hit them with all the oligarchs. We have to do it in a coordinated fashion with our allies. 
And are you working at all on this? Because you you have that list. Um, I know from looking at your previous presentations for why, for the application of Magnitsky's sanctions, that there were plenty, are plenty of oligarchs who are indirectly or directly responsible for human rights abuses who could have been kept in check by Magnitsky. Do you have that list? Are you are you collaborating with Europeans and Americans doing this particular work of sanctions? Well, it's interesting. So before before the invasion, the only people who were interested in talking to me was were, were the media. The media was interested in my my take on the whole thing. But after the invasion, I've been getting calls from different governments around the world um, to share my ideas, thoughts, names, etc., with them about who should be sanctioned and how to go about the sanctions. The problem is that the governments. Are, are, are trying to come to terms with this whole new concept that they've been rejecting, ignoring, not thinking about for the last 10 years. And so they're trying to like come up to speed in one week. I mean, all these people rebuffed me for years and years when I, when I went to them about this stuff. And so mm-hmm. they're all trying to get up the learning curve so fast and they're making all sorts of silly mistakes and not doing the right thing and incomplete lists. And, and it's all very haphazard because they're all trying to do this in real time and, and, uh, respond to something which requires it to be sort of done properly and thought through. And so it's an uncoordinated mess right now. But but as time goes on, it will become more coordinated, it'll become better, and more people will be added, I'm sure. One of the setbacks, we should say, was the death of the great champion of Magnitsky in the Senate, uh, John McCain. I don't know if you agree with me, but it seems like, you know, having that loud voice in the Senate and and also having a president who um, is less kindly disposed toward Vladimir Putin than Trump was, you know, could have made a difference. Well, it's it's um, it's it's interesting because and this is a, a really nonpartisan thing, because I think that both Trump and Obama were really hopeless when it came to dealing with Vladimir Putin. I think that Biden has done a pretty good job in this particular crisis. I think his, the, the work that he's done in leaking information so that everybody knew what Russia was up to, so that there was no different narrative to, to what this was, because Russia always mm-hmm. likes, to, likes to, to confuse people. So the, I think the, the Biden administration did a beautiful job of, of getting all this information out of there so that by the time it happened, everybody was on the same page and so we could have a coordinated reaction. It was perfectly played so that the misinformation coming out of Russia didn't work this time. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that, when, when it, we all looked at the atrocities, we knew that it wasn't anyone else's fault other than Putin's. And so people like the Germans, who have spent every minute of every day trying to appease Putin so they can have cheap gas and not have to worry about anything, were in an impossible position. Because, I mean, we, we've been trying to get the Germans off of Russian gas for, for mm-hmm. years and they've, they, you know, we're, we're trying to sanction Nord Stream pipelines so they don't get as much Russian gas, and they're busy fighting with us over that. And now all of a sudden, they finally understood that, you know, if if Ukraine falls, you know, it's not too long before Russia's going to be at their border. The United States has less to lose than, than Germany has in this whole thing, and they finally figured that out, and they finally started acting like a responsible world citizens in terms of uh, talking about diversifying away from Russian gas, providing mm-hmm. ar- armor and arms and missiles to the Ukrainians and to tighten their belts and understand that they're going to have to pay an economic price in terms of whatever retaliation there is to the sanctions. See, the international community can go green and stick it to Putin all in one go. If only it were that easy. We'll hear more about sanctioning Russian oligarchs when we return.
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Bill Browder, activist and author of Red Notice. Maybe you can wrap up by telling us what sanctions do you recommend and on whom among the oligarchs? Well, I um, there, there's 120 or so, you know, super rich oligarchs. Most, not all, but most are in somehow financially interconnected with Putin and hold his money. It's it's effectively the Forbes list of Russia. And what has to happen is the major Western allies have to get together and sanction almost everybody on that list. If that were to happen, Putin would see that all of the money offshore is not available. Money in the central bank is not available. And then, then he's got to figure out, okay, this war is costing him billions of dollars a day. How much longer can he do this for before he runs out of money? And mm-hmm. that's, I think that's the best we can hope for. I don't think we can hope for more than that. I don't think that there's a negotiation to be had. He might, he might dangle possibility of negotiation out there. Uh, he's going to try to break up our alliance and our, and our, our um, vigilance here. Uh, but mm-hmm. we have to just hold firm and, and try to stop him from uh, having enough money to do this. Yeah, but I don't totally get what that looks like. I mean, Gary Kasparov, your sometime running buddy, the chess grandmaster and uh, Putin foe, has said there are times when some of the members of this 120 list go to the ATM and their account is zero. That's just to help listeners visualize this. And then their assets are seized, their penthouses, they can't travel. I mean, it's not as though they're on the street panhandling, but it's close. And so you're imagining that's done to dozens more people. But how does that stop Putin? I mean, I realize they're holding debt for him, but how does that stop him from running the military? How do these private fortunes make a difference? Maybe you can spell this out for me one more time, Bill. These are not private fortunes. These are This is Putin's money. He's got onshore money, which is the government central bank, and he's got offshore money, which is the oligarchs. And nothing's going to stop him because he's not going to stop and say, God, this is really costing me a lot. Why don't we negotiate? Because he can't show weakness. All all that we can do is just run down his resources. That's how the Cold War ended up. We we basically bankrupted the Soviet Union. Now, we we Mm -hmm. got one huge problem here, which is that oil prices are high and and that's their main export. And so we have Mm -hmm. to be um, cognizant of that because there's still that. But, you know, what we've done so far is crippling and it could be more Mm -hmm. crippling. And the more we cripple him, the more likely it is that, that he's got to figure out some way, some, some way in which he can declare victory where he doesn't carry on with his worst possible plans. 
who is the last Magnitsky target um, before this happened that that you were really determined to uh, to sanction? So we put in 282 names to the U.S. government of people who should be sanctioned. And so far, about 50 of them have been sanctioned. And so we, we continue to, to try to get all the people involved in Magnitsky's murder to be sanctioned. Um, I, you know, I don't really want to go into individual names because they won't mean anything to your listeners. I get that you don't want to name names, but, you know, you've, you've submitted this list and those kind of sanctions that bring ATM balance to zero would, would you think, really seriously cripple first the oligarchs and then, and then Putin? Well, I, th- I think that basically if we did that, it, it would be the most dramatic thing he could have ever imagined. It would truly personally affect him. It would affect all the people around him. And um, it, there's, he has no sort of symmetrical response to that. Yeah. All right. Well, you're sounding more hopeful than you did at the beginning. I don't want to push you into anything, but you have said that Putin... Well, you said two things, contradictory things. One is he has no reverse button. Uh, Putin doesn't. And two, he could be stopped if he were fully strangled and the people around him strangled with sanctions. Right. So, 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 so he, has a, he has the ability to stall. He doesn't have the ability to go back. That, that, Got that, it. That, that's, that's kind of how I would characterize it. Okay, and he and he can be stalled by by outside forces and by a really determined EU and 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 United States and the UK, and and that determination one hopes will continue. That, that's that's all we have, and and until and unless we want to start fighting him ourselves, the best we have is is uh, is that, and and as Gary Kasparov said, we should be fighting him in the banks instead of with tanks, and so that's what we're going to do, and that's what we have to do. Fantastic, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm so grateful to so many of you who've liked what you hear and taken a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Please, more of you, join them. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... 
every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.